Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Blooming Fiascos, by poet Ellen Hagen. Blooming Fiascos is a collection of verse that deconstructs identity. We are beautiful and monstrous. We live in a beautiful and monstrous world. Hagen poetically mirrors these metaphoric adversaries, drawing on her experience as a woman, an artist, a mother, a transplanted Southerner, and above all, a human being. Listeners receive a 20% discount on Blooming Fiascos or any other title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Elizabeth Brooks' The Whispering House, which Renee Denfeld calls a gothic mystery like no other. The novel tells the story of Freya Lyle, a woman struggling to move on from her sister Stella's death five years ago, visiting the bewitching Burn Hall only a few miles from the scene of the tragedy. She discovers a portrait of Stella, a portrait she had no idea existed in a house Stella never set foot in, or so she thought. As Freya slowly uncovers more about the house and its secrets, she finds herself at the center of a propulsive tale of art, sisterhood, and all-consuming love. The ways it can lead us toward tenderness, nostalgia, and longing, as well as shocking acts of violence. The Whispering House is out on March 16th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin today's program with Viet Thanh Nguyen, I wanted to briefly bring up two things that have risen in prominence in the news since Viet and I talked, both because they each could have easily been part of our conversation, and especially since a lot of Viet's nonfiction writing is topical, speaking to the moment and into the moment, and also because even though his new book, The Committed, portrays the French-Vietnamese community mainly in interaction with the French-Arab community and 1980s Paris, much of what is going on and being questioned in this novel is still unfolding today. Since we talked, President Emmanuel Macron ordered a probe into the pedagogy of French universities, a pedagogy he and his education minister, Frédéric Vidal, claim is contaminated by American influences on race through post-colonial theories and what they coined as Islamo-leftism. When pressed on this term, Vidal said there was no specific definition for Islamo-leftism, but rather, in part, it was a feeling the citizens had. You have to wonder if it is the same feeling that results in between 40 and 70% of the French prison population being Muslims. Macron, in the fall, gave a speech that suggested that the alienation felt by some French citizens of Arab or African descent was partly a consequence of them seeing their identity through a post-colonial or anti-colonial discourse a discourse imported from the United States, 
one that, according to him, is corrosive to France's institutionally race-blind society. This has all been met with fierce backlash within France, with hundreds and hundreds of professors speaking out against this, and even the body that is being told to scour these schools for this corruption of thought has come out against it. But the main irony I see is that this so-called American corruption fails to see just how deeply American post-colonial thought is indebted to revolutionary post-colonial and anti-racist thought from the Francophone world, whether it be thinkers from France itself, the French-speaking Caribbean, or French-speaking North Africa. And this is the world of Viet Thanh Nguyen's The Committed, where the characters are either reading, debating, or being influenced by these very thinkers, these French-speaking thinkers that have since deeply shaped the discourse of post-colonial theory in the United States. The other thing I wanted to briefly bring up is Viet's engagement with something that has come to a head in the news since we talked, but which also serves as another example of much of what we do talk about around his idea of ethical memory, and also the importance of and difficulty of finding solutions around violence against one's own community in a way that doesn't harm other communities in the process, that doesn't further entrench structural hierarchies that have developed under white supremacy. You may or may not have heard about the recent rise in anti-Asian violence, particularly against Asian elders in California. An 84-year-old Thai man knocked to the ground in San Francisco who died two days later of a brain hemorrhage. A 64-year-old Vietnamese-American woman assaulted and robbed in San Jose. A 91-year-old man brutally shoved to the ground in Oakland's Chinatown. A Filipino man whose face was cut with a box cutter in New York City. And these examples only scratch the surface. And all of this is happening against the backdrop of anti-Asian racism skyrocketing since the pandemic began and Trump's rhetoric around the quote-unquote Chinese virus, with New York City reporting a 20-fold increase in anti-Asian hate crimes and the Stop AAPI hate database receiving nearly 3,000 reports of anti-Asian discrimination since the pandemic began. The discourse that has arisen around this has been complicated by the fact that some of the perpetrators have been people of color themselves. Viet tweeted the following about this. Horrendous crimes against Asian Americans have happened recently, and it is right that Asian Americans have spoken out against them. But we can be against anti-Asian violence and not resort to knee-jerk calls for more policing, which is inextricable from the policing of black and brown communities. Asian Americans need to locate anti-Asian violence as part of a pattern of white supremacy, which also targets black and brown and indigenous people. Even if perpetrators of violence are people of color, the solution is not to fall back on racist assumptions. 
This was met with a lot of contempt on Twitter. And he later tweeted, it's super interesting how many people are offended by the thought of doing two things at the same time, being against anti-Asian violence and anti-black racism. Viet is not alone in this, not by a long shot. Even if the loudest voices within the Asian American community are for more policing, for more law and order mediated solutions, dozens and dozens of organizations have pledged to do community coalition building across communities to find solutions for Asian American safety that don't harm the lives of other black and brown neighbors. This pledge has been signed in the Bay Area by everyone from the Asian Law Caucus and Asian Refugees United to the Chinese Cultural Center, the Filipino Cultural Center, and the Korean American Cultural Foundation of San Francisco, among many, many others. And some of these groups argue for this approach by looking back to the Rodney King riots and the burning of Koreatown in 1992, where the media focused on Black-Asian conflict in its aftermath. But quietly and slowly, outside of the spotlight, over the decades since, the coalition work that has been done between these communities, they believe is responsible for why, in a 2016 AAPI survey, Koreans now have some of the most progressive social justice and black equality stances of any Asian American demographic. I bring this up because this double act Viet is advocating is very much part of our discussion, but also part of the story of the committed, where the protagonist is navigating the various ideologic fault lines within the Vietnamese and Vietnamese diasporic communities and figuring out what way he himself can commit to. So even though we are about to go to 1980s France, as you can see, we are very much in the here and now as well. For the bonus audio archive, Viet talks about the importance for him of the work of Edward P. Jones and Maxine Hong Kingston and reads favorite excerpts of each of their work. To find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio archive and the many other benefits of transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter, head over to patreon.com slash between the covers. And now, my conversation with Viet Thanh Nguyen. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. 
They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist, essayist, and scholar Viet Thanh Nguyen. Nguyen studied English and ethnic studies and received his doctorate in English at UC Berkeley and is now the Errol Arnold Chair of English and Professor of English, American Studies, and Ethnicity and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. He's an opinion writer for the New York Times and his writings have appeared everywhere from Time Magazine to The Washington Post, from The Guardian to The Atlantic. His books include the story collection The Refugees, their critical works Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America, and Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, a finalist for both the National Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award in Nonfiction. He's editor of The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives, he co-edited Trans-Pacific Studies, Framing an Emerging Field, he co-founded the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network, and its literary arm called Diacritics, which publishes essays, interviews, book reviews, and much more from the Vietnamese diaspora, and which for a couple years was helmed by past Between the Covers guest Dao Strom. Nguyen is also on the steering committee for USC's Center for Trans-Pacific Studies, which encourages the study of how cultures, peoples, capital, and ideas flow across the Pacific and between Asia, the Americas, and the Pacific Islands. Viet Thanh Nguyen is a Guggenheim Fellow, a recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and is perhaps best known for his first novel, which prompted his first visit to Between the Covers six years ago, the Sympathizer, winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Fiction, the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, the Edgar Award for Best First Novel, the First Novel Prize for the Center for Fiction, the Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction from the American Library Association, Le Prix de Meilleur Livre Étranger from France for Best Foreign Book, a California Book Award, and the Asian Pacific American Award for Literature in Fiction. John Freeman says of The Sympathizer, Nguyen performs an optic tilt about Vietnam and what America did there as profound as Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man and Toni Morrison's beloved word to the legacy of racism and slavery. Maxine Hong Kingston adds, describing The Sympathizer's protagonist, trapped in endless civil war, the man who has two minds tortures and is tortured as he tries to meld the halves of his country and of himself. Viet Thanh Nguyen accomplishes this integration in a magnificent feat of storytelling. The Sympathizer is a novel of literary, historical, and political importance. Thus, it's thrilling six years later to have Viet Thanh Nguyen return to Between the Covers, along with his protagonist, who returns in the much-anticipated follow-up, The Committed, just out now from Grove, and garnering starred reviews like There's No Tomorrow. Marlon James says, Call the committed many things. 
a white-hot literary thriller disguised as a searing novel of ideas, an unflinching look at redemption and damnation, an unblinking examination of the dangers of belief and the need to believe, a sequel that goes toe-to-toe with the original, then surpasses it, a masterwork. Ocean Vong adds, fierce in tone, capacious, witty, sharp, and deeply researched, the committed marks not just a sequel to its groundbreaking predecessor, but a sum total accumulation of a life devoted to Vietnamese American history and scholarship. This novel, like all daring novels, is a Trojan horse whose hidden power is a treatise of global futurity in the aftermath of colonial conquest. It asks questions central both to Vietnamese everywhere and to our very species. How do we live in the wake of seismic loss and betrayal? And perhaps even more critically, how do we laugh? Finally, Paul Beatty says, an elegy to idealism, Orientalism and existentialism in all its tragic forms, Wynne's novel doesn't so much inhabit early 80s Paris as it pulls the plug on the city of light. Think of the committed as the declaration of the 20th and a half arrondissement, a squatter's paradise for those with one foot in the grave and the other shoved halfway up Western civilization's ass. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Viet Thanh Nguyen. Hi, David. It's great to be back here. Um, you know, I had such a great time talking to you back in 2015 for The Sympathizer, uh, one of my early interviews, I think, ever as a writer. And, uh, oh, really? A great one. Yeah, a great one. And uh, it's just a shock to me that it's been six years since then. So fantastic to be back here. It's an amazing thing to think about because when we were talking, you hadn't won the Pulitzer yet. I was looking through your academic essays to prepare. And I think a lot of those essays were probably written for a narrower audience at the time. And now we flash forward to today and in preparing for today, I'm, I'm watching or listening to you in conversation with some of the greatest thinkers of our time from Pankaj Mishra to Arundhati Roy to Claudia Rankin to Maxine Hong Kingston. So it really has been a remarkable six years for you. Well, I'm really grateful for, for for everything that's happened, especially the chance to talk to people. I mean, yourself as a really excellent interviewer, but with all those people that you mentioned, it's been a real privilege just to have had the opportunity to to share the stage and swap ideas. Or, you know, in the case of Paul Paul Beatty, you know, we did a, a long interview, a long conversation together with uh, for the Believer magazine. But I got a chance to hang out with him. You know, we were both in uh, in uh, in France at a literary festival drinking beers on, on a riverside. <laughs> it's like, that's a writer's dream come true is to hang out with, you know, smart, talented people like that. <laughs> yeah, it sounds amazing. Well, um, when we first talked in 2015, I want to do a little recap because when we first talked in 2015, we talked a lot about doubling because our protagonist in The Sympathizer was a double agent. And thus he had to demonstrate allegiance to the side he was working against to pretend to be an anti-communist within the Vietnamese American community that hoped to eventually topple the Vietnamese government, when in fact he's, he worked at least provisionally for that government. And yet his greatest skill to the consternation of both sides was a double vision, the ability to see things from both sides. The Sympathizer, the book, was his confession, 
which he wrote when he was in a communist education camp. And it was a confession that was way too nuanced for, for anybody, essentially. A confession that he now carries in the committed in a double bottom of a carrying case. Um, so we talked, we talked back then about your now famous saying that all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield and the second time in memory. And we discussed your proposal for a model of ethical memory that itself was also a double model that for memory to be ethical, it necessitated not just the remembering of one's own people's tragedies, but also the remembering of that of the other and an awareness around what your own people are forgetting in their own story to avoid contending with a competing story of another. Um, so for today's conversation, I was hoping we could switch to a different frame, and that's of the dialectic. And it's a, a frame we could have chosen back then, but perhaps it's more interesting now because we have the compare and contrast of two books, um, The Sympathizer and now The Committed. The, the dialectic you set up in both books is between communism and anti-communism with the three Vietnamese men um, who became blood brothers as boys, one who becomes an ardent communist, one who becomes an ardent anti-communist, and the third, our protagonist, who sympathizes with both positions but commits to neither. And it's an ambiguous position that raises the question of whether there's a way forward that is a response to both but belongs to neither. But where I was hoping we could start is The Sympathizer is centered on the United States and your new book, The Committed on France. And that's where I was hoping we would begin, given that France has a very different relationship to communism and also a very different history around race and race theory. So I was hoping we could start with talking about the Vietnamese community in France and how those differences in France create a different discourse within the Vietnamese community there. Well, you brought up the issue that, uh, you know, there's, there's a need for an ethical memory to, to confront the other uh, and to displace one's own assumptions. Uh, and that's something that I think, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging for a lot of people to do, including for myself. And one of the ways that, that it's, it, it's able to, that we can make that happen is to force ourselves to go somewhere else and literally be out of our comfort zone. And so that's what for, uh, France was for me or is for me. Um, and of course, because I'm Vietnamese and I was born in Vietnam, uh, the, the question of French influence and French colonization was always present for me. I mean, my parents, for example, were born during the period of French colonization. My father is 86 years old, and, you know, when I visit him, he, he regales me still with nostalgic stories about France, about, you know, about the songs that he had to sing in school, and, and he can still remember some of these French lyrics. So to grapple with the, 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 the legacy of the French for the Vietnamese was, was really important to me because, you know, another way to imagine the dialectic for, for the Vietnamese in the 20th century was that we were caught between France and the United States. Uh, so the, in The Sympathizer, I, I really wanted to grapple with the, the meaning of the United States and, and, and the war in Vietnam for, for myself and for, for Vietnamese people in general. And then I thought, well, I, 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 I let France off easy in that book. I mean, I did talk about it a little bit, but not much. And so for the purposes of the, of the plot of a sequel, I thought, what, what better place to go than France? And that would force me to, to engage with French politics around race and around colonialism and around democracy and revolution. Uh, and it, it, 
from the purposes of a plot, it was just it was just going to be a lot of fun. There was a lot of things to say, and going there to France, I spent um, I've been to France before writing the novel, but I, I spent a couple of summers there as well, trying to talk to as many uh, French people of Vietnamese descent as I could to 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 see what they thought about the kinds of issues that I was uh, interested in, and of course coming into it, I knew that I was coming in as an American, uh, Vietnamese for sure, but also an American. And I, I knew enough about France to know that my, my thinking on these issues of politics and race and democracy might be different than those of the French. And lo and behold, the, all that proved to be true. Um, you know, I mean, f- French people obviously are aware of, of these questions around diversity and difference and race and all that, but their take is very different. And for me, w- the first thing I had to encounter was that the French of Vietnamese descent obviously don't have a hybrid model of identity that Americans do, or a multicultural one. These are terms that, in the French model of universalism and, and democracy, are 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 not positives. You know, you're supposed to aspire to uh, assimilation into a universal ideal of equality, and to call oneself like a Vietnamese American or an Asian American, as we do here in the United States, is is quite alien there in France. So the French of Vietnamese descent don't call themselves Vietnamese French, for example. They're just French. They acknowledge their Vietnamese ancestry. But almost uniformly, their attitude was, well, we've done pretty good here. Mm. (laughs) We've integrated the the French-like Vietnamese people, Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese food, and we really don't have any trouble here. And I I really only encountered, I think, one person, and she happened to be of mixed-race descent, who took a different, very different stance. And she said, you know, it, this is what the this is what the French of Vietnamese uh, descent think, uh, but if we look around, we see all these kinds of problems around the legacies of colonialism and race. Why aren't the the, the French of Vietnamese descent engaging with these issues? And so that that is one of the topics of the novel: this critique of these attitudes among the, the French of Vietnamese descent, but through them, French attitudes in general towards race and religion and colonialism. It's also worth mentioning that major figures in history that play a role in this book, from Ho Chi Minh to Pol Pot to Franz Fanon, um, all at one point or another, they lived in France and studied in France. And with France's very different relationship to communism, with the communists valorized for their role in the French resistance during Nazi occupation, and with the country frequently electing socialist leaders, and even having a Jewish socialist leader during Hitler. Um, And also something that you note in the book, that Jean-Paul Sartre supported the post-colonial revolutionary theories of Fanon and wrote the preface to Wretched of the Earth. So there's this, you know, the colonial power, but then there's also this sort of this intellectual thread that is going both directions around evaluating the colonial power. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fascinated, obviously, by French political thinking and French radical politics and all of that, and and so on the one hand, with you know, France is the 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 birthplace of of of, of contemporary Western democracy and and revolution, and these ideas are are super important to the French and embedded in their notions of uh, of a secular state, and of course, the French were were significant supporters, ironically, of the Vietnamese Revolution, even after having been defeated by the Vietnamese. And 
at the same time, their their attitudes towards race and colonialism can can also be very patronizing and condescending at the same time. So they're contradictory, just like Americans are contradictory or Vietnamese are contradictory. And part of the fun of writing a novel is to go into the contradictions, especially for someone like me who wants to take these political and cultural contradictions seriously, but also to satirize them at the same time. So there is a very, I hope, a significant dimension of the committed, which is a, that, that satirical element, which continues from the sympathizer. And here the target is not you know, American right-wing politics or American imperialism, but here the target is uh, all these French pretensions and these French ideals, which are all beautiful, but which are also undercut by uh, human excesses as well. Yes. So there are, yeah, there are various, you know, uh, one, one strand of the novel is a satire of the French left wing and, and of French intellectuals, which I had a lot of fun with, but also to take them seriously at the same time. So, you know, I quote Sartre, for example, but I also have, you know, a figure in there that's sort of a composite figure, uh, the BFD, who is an allusion to various kinds of French intellectuals with three <laughs> initials yes. for their name. <laughs> Quite a few of them. Yeah. Yes, yeah. If, if there are. Well, I, recently I was listening to a London Review of Books podcast with Hazel Carby, and she's the chair of the African American Studies Department at Yale. And she was discussing her critique of Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast. In Wilkerson's book, which, as you, as you know, because I, I listened to a great conversation between the two of you, she compares the situation of African Americans to both the caste system in India and to anti-Semitism in Nazi Germany. But Carby argues that the comparison that is most relevant and most potentially illuminating is a comparison that Wilkerson doesn't make. And it's between Black Americans and other Black diasporic communities in the Americas, from Canada to the Caribbean to Brazil. And that by not making that comparison, Cast ends up reinscribing and reinforcing not only the story of a nation state and American exceptionalism, but also black American exceptionalism. The idea that the black American experience epitomizes the black diasporic condition and that caste forecloses questions of social movements that are not defined by national narratives. So Carby goes on to argue that not only that, but that African-American studies has done a similar thing. It's blinkered itself, focusing more and more over time on the national narrative, the American narrative, that if it were to teach a truly diasporic black studies, it would have to contend with and confront questions of indigeneity, among other things, and questions that aren't bound to national narratives. All of this made me think of John Keane's counter-narratives as a great counter-example of sort of a rich complex engagement with the black diaspora. But I also thought of your move to France and the committed, and it raised the question of whether it was coming from a similar impulse or if one of the impulses to go to France was a similar impulse. And so the two things I wondered were, A, if in moving the story to France, you had the impulse to decenter the nation and particularly to decenter the United States and more particularly the Asian American, and more particularly than that, the Vietnamese American, as epitomizing experiences? And B, what if any parallels or divergences do you see from what Carby describes in African American studies with your experiences in Asian American studies? 
Asian American studies and Asian American culture uh, since its very inceptions has had a, a weakness, which is that weakness towards nationalism. You know, uh, we we because we've been excluded from American culture as foreigners and outsiders and so on. There's a very strong impulse to say, no, we are Americans. We belong here. We've been here for generations. We've done this and this for this country and so on. And, and that's a very powerful thing to do and a necessary thing to do. But it is a, a slippery slope, as you're implying, because then it, you become blinded to what it is that nations actually do. So what does it mean to belong to a country like the United States to, to claim equality in a multicultural society if one of the, the the requirements for doing that is to participate or to be complicit in American imperialism? Now, this is the question that Martin Luther King Jr. raised in his speech Beyond Vietnam, which for me is, is a really crucial text for understanding American politics and, and black politics in this country because he does his best to say you cannot, if you're interested in black liberation, be invested only in the question of what happens to black people in the United States. I mean, that has to be important. But as he says, what does it mean when, when black men, only black men at this time, are being sent overseas to fight a racist imperialist war against Asians? And so he's arguing that you know black liberation is inseparable from an anti-imperialist uh, anti-capitalist project. And of course, it was probably his most radical speech and not an accident that he was assassinated a year after giving that speech. So at that time in 1967 and 1968, when he gave the speech and then when he was assassinated, he was turning more towards this, this international revolutionary uh, moment that goes hand in hand with the most radical elements of black liberation in the United States. And I think that for me, uh, I've turned increasingly more, increasingly more in that direction too, as I recognize the limits of conducting American-only narratives. Because with a sympathizer, I mean, I did my best with a sympathizer to to work against that narrative, being very conscious of it. But it was really hard because you know American readers will come in with American preoccupations and American conceptions, and the hold of American exceptionalism upon American consciousness is very, very strong. And that includes uh, that is also true for people who are immigrants to this country from Asia who want to be American. You know, part part of the price of becoming American is to accept American exceptionalism. So, writing setting this book in France was very important for me to dislodge that assumption, to put it into play against what's happening in France. Uh, eventually, in the third part of the trilogy, it will be necessary to bring the book back to the United States and Vietnam to complete. Or not to complete, but at least to make the next dialectical move that I want to make. But going to France and was was crucial here because, of course, there is a, a really strong component of anti-colonial, decolonizing thinking that comes out of the French colonial uh, francophone context. So I was quoting people in the committed like uh, France Fanon and also Aimé Césaire. Uh, they're both very deliberate in drawing connections between uh, black diasporic experiences, the experiences of people in on Caribbean islands and in, in Africa, French Africa, with the experiences of, of black Americans. It's very, very deliberate. You know, and, and the arguments that they both make are that these, these are integrated systems. The slavery that happens in the United States is connected to the slavery of the Caribbean. Uh, it's connected to the slavery of, of that's with the exploitation that's happening in Africa, and then the comp experiences of the uh, of colonized uh, black people from French colonies in France is analogous to what happens to black Americans in the United States. So I think Carby's critique, which I haven't read, but you know from your summary, I'm I'm very much in agreement with that push. 
that both Asian American politics and African American politics need to be pushed provocatively to consider their deep investments in a blinkered nationalism. Uh, and this has manifested most recently for me in Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, you know, which is, you know, on the one hand, a necessary film to put black men at the center of the Vietnam War experience. And it quotes Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam, but Spike Lee doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. Uh, he doesn't understand that you just can't put black men at the center of an American narrative and be done with the project if you don't critique American imperialism, which he doesn't do. And he even uh, has a modern day war in Vietnam with them, essentially. <laughs> I mean, there's not only the right. memory of them, the centering of their own trauma in Vietnam, but there are actually people are, are, are um, battling each other in the jungle in contemporary Vietnam. It's a repetition of Hollywood stories, you know, and I understand what Spike Lee is trying to do. He wants to obviously make a critique of Apocalypse Now and all of that, but he also wants to, again to to simply take those forms of the shoot 'em up, of the of the of the uh, besieged American man, the, the crime narrative, and so on, and put black men into it. But you can't do that. You cannot just do that and get away from the ideological baggage that's also part of these spectacular forms as well. And so that's why also in The Sympathizer and The Committed, I think I'm also not just trying to tell a story with a Vietnamese person at the center of it, but to also question the narrative forms in which these stories are being told. Well, let me let me stay with that a little bit longer, because um, just like you're saying that you can't just put a you can't just center it on a black American soldier and not question the structure of American imperialism. Um, and you're saying you're not just centering a Vietnamese person. You're also trying to go farther than what you see that Spike Lee didn't do in his film. And I, I wondered if part of you going farther was choosing to have your character be mixed race, um, having the protagonist have a French father and a Vietnamese mother. Because you could say you, at the beginning you have this really funny part about the dialectical baguette, which you describe as you're contemplating the banh mi, the utterly Vietnamese creation that improves upon but relies utterly upon a French creation. It's, in, there, it's inseparably both and undeniably a product of colonization, just as our protagonist's birth is. But I also wondered, especially because you're centering a character who philosophically, if he has convictions, they're really hard to categorize. And we learn them slowly and there's an ambiguity to, to them. If there's an appeal for you as a writer or for its political implications to not allow the character to be fully categorized as quote-unquote purely Asian or purely Vietnamese, if somehow you're sabotaging sort of a regressive authenticity narrative. You know, absolutely, because uh, I, I'm proud to be Vietnamese, I'm happy to be Vietnamese, but I also recognize Vietnamese culture, Vietnamese people do have their share of problems, and part of part of their share of problems is racism. You know, it's like, one of the ironies, of course, is that Vietnamese people have been victims of racism through colonialism, and then American warfare, and then here in the United States. And there, of course, anybody who's been a victim of racism is sensitive about it. But one of the ironies of this is that oftentimes the victims of racist experience 
turn around and are racist themselves. The Vietnamese are not the first ones guilty of it. They won't be the last ones. But of course, one of the ways by which in the United States you learn how to be an American is that you learn how to be an American racist. <laughs> an immigrant becomes more, more American or closer to white people by learning anti-black narratives, for example. And so the Vietnamese are not uh, uh, excused from that. And I wanted to, in the sympathizer both obviously deal with Vietnamese people and Vietnamese history, but not let them off the hook. And so creating a mixed race character who would uh, be who would have to absorb the racism of other Vietnamese people was one way of, of holding Vietnamese people to account. Now, that being said, uh, the novel can't escape the world that it's in. So when it won the Pulitzer Prize, all these Vietnamese people who never read the book rushed to embrace it and, and me because of... <laughs> This weird attachment to the the symbolism uh, of of the prize and whatever whatever it meant. So the my work in these two novels is both engaged with saying yes, we need to talk about Vietnamese people and Vietnamese history, but yet also challenging people on their notions of authenticity at the same time. Yeah, well, I was I was listening to a ton of conversations with you recently, and I listened to some podcasts that were produced by and also focused on questions of Asian Americans. Uh, including the Bon Me Chronicles and Agent Enough. Uh, but most notably, a, a really great conversation you had on a podcast that I didn't know of before called Time to Say Goodbye on ethnic studies, revolutionary politics, and and the Third World Revolutionary Front. And I learned there that the word Asian American originally was created in the 1960s, inspired by the Black Power Movement, and it had radical origins. To return to the the dialectic for a minute in this context, most of what I hear today about that term are it's are the problems with the term. Um, but if I think before we talk about the problems, but if I think about the fraught histories between Asian countries, um, whether it be China's imperial conquests in Vietnam, Vietnam's decade-long occupation of Cambodia, Korea's participation with America in the Vietnam War, Korea's colonization by Japan, and so on, the imagining of a collective solidarity as Asian Americans seems visionary, like it has the potential to be powerful. Um, But on the other hand, it also feels like it has the potential to not only erase or elide huge differences in how each group has a different American experience, immense differences in class, say, between the average Indian American and the average Cambodian American. Big differences in how white adjacent different groups are versus others. But it also feels like it could reinforce pre-existing power dynamics where East Asians become the face of Asian Americans more than Central Asians or Southeast Asians or even worse, Pacific Islanders who seem to only be included in name. So I guess this is my long question, my long way to the question about the term, which arose from a desire for the collective and for solidarity across difference and perhaps to rise above grievances between different peoples, but now also seems to fit within a model of a sort of representational politics that has the potential to be far more reactionary than revolutionary. So I wondered why, where you sat with that term, Asian America, Asian American, given its history and its its sort of contemporary use. 
I really needed that term and that identity when I was 19 years old and coming into Berkeley for the first time. And for me, that was a dialectical moment. It was like being hit by intellectual and political lightning to even hear the word term Asian American, because there was no such term for me before then. I was either an American or a Vietnamese or an Oriental, and, and none of these things were really satisfactory. So it it served its purpose for me, and it still does to some extent. But I stress the word dialectic because, as you imply, uh, these uh, the, the the terms and these identities don't mean the same thing at every moment in history, either for an individual or for, in our case, for for the United States. So, in the 1960s, Asian American was absolutely revolutionary. It was anti-imperialist, anti-war, anti-racist. It was based in Marxism, and so on. You can't say that anymore. Right, because the, the 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 change in demographics, the, the the political changes have meant that now Asian American has become this representational term for inclusion, diversity, belonging, pluralism, and and all the various limitations that that involves, including, you know, an an openness to being commodified. So, uh, what does it mean to be an Asian American if being an Asian American right now means that we have reality shows like The House of Ho and Bling Empire and all of that kind of stuff? Well, my stance on that is we we fought to have this opportunity to be commodified. The, the choice was being simply being erased or, or being commodified. And so now we fought to the point where we've reached this unfortunate moment where we're, we're equally exploitable like every other American population. But I think that we had to get to this point. We had to, this was a movement of the dialectic. And now that we've gotten to this point where revolutionary struggle has led us to being, you know, just further opportunities for capitalist commodification in a democratic capitalism, then we can move to the next step. And that's where going to France was also very interesting, because in France, it's sort of like the reverse. Because one of the great things, I think, about being French of Vietnamese descent is, I think, for, for, for those those folks, it's true. They fit in. They, they get along really well. And for them, French democracy uh, worked out. They could become these universal individuals in France, at least that was their experience, and even France Fanon in in Black Skin White Masks wavers between this necessity for uh, about being black and the desire just to be human, and he's not being naive. He's just saying that we can have both of these desires in heart in our hearts at the same time. And the question of revolution and decolonizing struggle was how do we get there? How, how do we not deny our blackness or our Asianness because that's how we're being oppressed? And yet how do we aspire to a, a universal humanness uh, that, that we, we, we know we need to strive for? Uh, and so I think that's where I'm at now with this whole idea of the Asian American coalition, etc. It's a, it's a tactic, it's an identity that has has certain kinds of, of opportunities that we still need to, 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 to use. But for me, it's not the end goal. The end goal is just this vision of revolutionary humanism that France Fanon has. But it's not, it's not a kind of humanism that's liberal in the sense that we can just say, let's all close our eyes, let's wish away our differences, and we'll all get along. Right. That's not the kind of humanism that, that he believes in, believed in or I, or I believe in. And so the project of the novels is, to, is exactly that. Like, how do we get to that point of being equally human what what are the costs involved because it's not going to be easy to get there it's not it's not just like singing kumbaya it's like it involves really costly political and individual struggle and that's the terrain of the committed well when you talk about the dialectic around the term asian american talk to us about in the light of that talk to us about why you choose to call yourself a refugee versus an immigrant in that light 
I, I think because I am a refugee or I was a refugee and the whole crucial issue is if you were once a refugee, can you still call yourself a refugee when you clearly are no longer one? You know, I'm, I'm not displaced. I'm not homeless. I'm not poor. I'm not marginalized. I'm not I'm not uh, persecuted and none of those things. And so to, to call myself a refugee is both to acknowledge the historical fact of how I came to this country. I did not come as an immigrant. And also to to make a political claim about about aligning myself or standing up with people who are refugees versus people who are immigrants, because we just went through a very difficult period of our history, four years of a Trump administration that demonized immigrants and refugees. And in that sense, even standing up for immigrants became a political um, need. But but outside of that, I mean, the immigrant totally fits into American mythology, you know, like we're a country of immigrants and so on. And this along with the national narrative of Asian American assimilation is both powerful and also deeply problematic because you have to ask yourself, what are you invested in when you say you're an immigrant who has come to a country of immigrants? And increasingly, I, I, you know, I cannot look at this without thinking of, of the fact that we're still a colonizing society on indigenous lands, uh, and that for indigenous peoples, colonization never really ended and they're still struggling against it. And so to be an to, be, to claim to be an immigrant and, and to be a part of this American land means that you're also claiming to be a part of this colonizing project at the same time. Refugees aren't excused from that. I mean, refugees can also settle and take on land and all that as well. But for me to, 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 pick, to, to select that refugee uh, narrative means that I can point to different things. And I can point to the fact that refugees come to this country oftentimes because of the wars we wage in other places. And so refugees are are the alibis for American imperialism. You know, America can say, look, we have all the we have this wonderful Vietnamese American population. We took in these people, we rescued them, and that somehow absolves what the United States did in Vietnam and in so many other countries where refugees come from. So on the one hand, it was a, it was a situation where, where I had to say, you know, the Trump administration is wrong in cutting refugee admissions to like 10,000 from an Obama era uh, number of like 180,000. And yet to also be aware that as I was arguing that we should take in more refugees and immigrants, that I'm also participating in this colonizing project. That's That's the kind of intractable contradiction that I think my work is aimed at. To to continue with the intractable contradiction and to return to the Vietnamese blood brothers, they are blood brothers. They're tied together by blood. They are a family as fellow Vietnamese. They have something deep that unites them. But whatever it is only goes so far. One, the, the communist oversaw the torture of another, our protagonist, in a communist re-education camp. And the other, if they knew our protagonist was not really an ardent anti-communist, it would be the greatest betrayal imaginable. Um, I had a, we had a past guest on the show, poet Yun Song Kim, and she said something in an interview recently that has been sort of revolutionary for me as a framing device. Um, as a way to frame and contextualize myself as a Jewish person in relationship to traumas of the Jewish experience, but also as an individual Jewish person in relationship to the Jewish community at large. But more importantly, to make sure that doing this is connected to an awareness of how Jews are positioned within America at large. Um, so to tether it to the structural, she's not Jewish, she's Korean American, but, um, but it, I'm going to read what she said and say a couple of things and then see if, it, if you feel like it's something that you connect to or that you disagree with. She said, 
there is fighting white supremacy and there is fighting anti-blackness. I have found that fighting anti-blackness often means fighting with those closest to you. And I would add anti-indigeneity to this equation since it often frequently gets erased. But otherwise, when when I hear this, I think of in my own context of how most Jewish institutions in the U.S. fight white supremacy by centering their own ways they've been traumatized in relationship to it, not realizing that because of where Jews are positioned, an insider-outsider position that shares some qualities with Asian Americans and the model minority phenomenon, um, not realizing that when one fights white supremacy only from one's middle position point of view, it can actually perpetuate anti-blackness I'm thinking of, for instance, the love of so many Jewish institutions around law enforcement solutions, even in neighborhoods they share with different black and brown communities that, for obvious reasons, are very uneasy about that. On the other hand, if I were to fight anti-blackness as a Jew instead, um, not instead of fighting anti-Semitism, but as sort of a required aspect of a liberation-focused politics, I would be having to fight within the Jewish community against its own racism as much as I would be fighting on behalf of the Jewish community against white supremacy. So this is where I was sort of thinking, I was connecting Yunsung Kim to your definition of ethical memory, that the memory of the other um, and this idea of, of being aware of what one is forgetting um, and I guess I wondered because I, 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 I feel like you and your writings, the writing you're doing in the newspapers and magazines regularly about what's going on in the world feels inspirational and instructional in a way that feels like an enactment of this quote for me around how you're engaging with the Vietnamese American community. But do you see anything in that, that either, uh, you embrace or push or you push away? Well, I think that's pretty accurate i mean if you are not if you're not a white person and you're engaged in in fighting against white supremacy actively or or passively let's say you're you're still engaged in a battle of self-interest right uh, unless you explicitly try to align yourself with with white people or white supremacy which does happen as long as you're fighting against it and you're not white you're you're doing something that has some benefit to you uh and so it's easier to mobilize people around that issue of your own uh group to fight against anti-blackness or to be aware of one's own investments in anti-blackness means that you are uh, working in a different direction. You're, you're allying yourself with another population. You're recognizing how anti-blackness has been fundamental to the United States since its very inception and that there are privileges and benefits that accrue, but not just to white people, to anybody who's not black in American society because of uh, the, the the deep structural embeddedness of anti-black um, racism in this country. And I think I saw that very clearly happening in France, because in France, the French, my reading of it is that the French of Vietnamese descent, part of the reason why they, they like where they're at, is because uh, they're not the targets of white supremacist violence in France. They are regarded as the model minority, and they get along, and they intermarry, and, and, and they're, they're desirable as neighbors and, and colleagues and all that. But I, I only met one person who proactively brought up the issue that perhaps the privileged place of the French of Vietnamese descent in France is possible because they're not black or they're not Arab or they're not Muslim. 
and and I never asked people about that issue because I didn't want to lead them down that road. I just wanted to see if they themselves would even bring it up. And the fact that almost no one did was very telling to me that they were lacking this sort of consciousness of solidarity, this this recognition that they don't they didn't get everything they got simply because of who they are, <laughs> which, I mean, not to discredit the work that they might have done or their families, but you know, they, they, they got what they got, at least partly because of who they're not. And I think that's a difficult position for, for a lot of people to, to be in, uh, to recognize that you have privilege. So if you're against white supremacy, you're, you're against white privilege, but you're not recognizing that you yourself may have privileges of some kind. Right. And so, you know, if we're demanding that white people recognize their own privilege, which they should, we should always be constantly sort of self-reflexive and thinking about what other kinds of privileges accrue to us racially or in terms of class or in terms of sexuality or gender and so on. And, you know, that was part of the thinking around the committed, because when I reached the end of the sympathizer, which is a really stringent, you know, criticisms, a criticism of imperialism and racism and so on, I also realized that, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book with a, a protagonist who's deeply invested in misogyny and patriarchy and heterosexuality. And, and a, a dialectical move would require me to interrogate that, too. And so the committed is continues the critique of racism and colonialism, but also it makes much more explicit a critique of the privilege of being a heterosexual man, even if one happens to be of mixed race or of Asian descent. No, I love, I love the, the um, difficult move you make, but also the way you do it with a lot of humor also, where we have characters who are wildly misogynistic, but the book itself is very feminist. Like the, there, there's this way in which, you enact some of these these um, I don't know call patriarchal male blind spots, but then also bring in um, like Ellen Sixu and Julia Kristeva and um, a variety of ways in which they're being critiqued and critiquing ultimately critiquing themselves. It it feels like a I, I don't know how you did that as a writer, where it's very clear where you stand, but it's not the same place where where your characters are standing. So I mean, part of that I wanted to <laughs> I wanted to write a novel that that could be construed as a feminist novel, and thank you for saying it. Um, I wouldn't dare call it that myself. I just have to wait and see what other people's assessments are. But you know, I wanted to write a novel about a, a man who gradually comes to understand how deeply invested he has been in his own sexuality, especially heterosexuality, and his own masculinity. So that even as he can be critical of other forms of domination, he has to come to recognize that he himself participates in other people's oppression, right? And I had I wanted to do it without being heavy-handed. Like I, I didn't want to have a moment in the book where he says, I'm a feminist, or, right. or to use the word feminism in the book, even if that might be part of the intent of the book. So it had to be his awakening, his, his sense of self-awareness had to come about uh, through the plot and had to be couched in a sort of a humorous way so that it wouldn't become too self-serious. Uh, and so that was the tricky part of the novel is to try to figure out how to, how to do that, to not make him into an angel, uh, to still participate in some of the hijinks that carried over from the sympathizer. And yet, as you said, to make it very clear that there's a feminist uh, critique happening here. And that, that happened through citing feminist thinkers and having some strong feminist characters in the novel. Well, I want to return also to you talking about how perhaps French Vietnamese are happier with where they're positioned because they're they're not 
targeted in the same way as other populations within France. And it made me think of how and the, the statistics are, are wildly variable, um, partially because I don't think France, because of this, I, this idea of this blind, sort of like universalism and um, neutral secularism, they don't, they don't tally these um, statistics in the same way. But the statistics range from 40 to 70% of the people in jail in France are Muslim, which is pretty remarkable. But one thing that's, I think, um, unique about the committed, it's different than the sympathizer, is a lot of the interactions are between two colonized people in the committed. So we have interactions, mostly a turf war between French Vietnamese and uh, North African Arab population in Paris. How much of that was um, imagined? How much of that is like arises from historical um, investigations um, and how much of it from talking to people in, in Paris and, and tell us more about that uh, interaction. If you have more to tell about the two populations and, and how they, they coexist or don't coexist with each other. So in writing the committed, you know, it's, it's meant to be a political novel and so on, but also it's meant to extend the, the genre aspect of the sympathizer, which is a spy novel. So he's no longer a spy in the committed, but it is a crime novel because he arrives in Paris in 1982 and he's basically wrecked after his time in re-education and as a, a, a refugee for, for, for a third time. And so he makes some very, very bad choices in his life and gets involved with a gang, uh, a gang and becomes a, a drug dealer. Okay. So I asked, all these folks of, of uh, Vietnamese descent in France, I said, so uh, were there Vietnamese gangsters in the in the 70s and 80s? You know, And they said, no, Vietnamese people don't do that kind of stuff. We don't commit crimes. I mean, seriously, that was the answer. <laughs> and and uh, But I knew, actually, that, you know, that there was a very famous Vietnamese gangster in South Vietnam who actually, you know, uh, migrated to France eventually and became, you know, sort of the godfather uh, in France. Um, and then... I I, the, I I thought that there must be a way to make this work, at least historically, so it's kind of accurate. So then it occurred to me that what, what some people would say, well, you know, there are Chinese gangs in Chinatown. And I thought, well, there are Chinese people in Vietnam. I mean, there are ethnic Chinese people in Vietnam, and a lot of them fled as refugees, and some of them ended up in France. So I thought, well... This solves my problem. I'll make them ethnic Chinese Vietnamese gangsters, and so everybody will blame the fact that they're being Chinese versus they're being Vietnamese. And so that was the way to to foreground the, the crime narrative uh, in the book and also to address this idea that somehow the Vietnamese can never commit crimes, which I'm just – I just don't believe, you know, because there are a lot of Vietnamese gangsters in the United States, uh, and so I don't know why that would be different in France. But I, I – the, the crime angle was another way to bring up politics without being sanctimonious. Like I did want to address the relationships between uh, colonized peoples in France and not center white people, but I didn't want it for the most part to be this idea that somehow if people from different colonized backgrounds are going to just get, get together and form a, a revolutionary brotherhood. So in fact, what happens is the ethnic Chinese gang and the Algerians are, as you say, in a turf battle and violent, terrible things happen. And yet at the same time, there is the possibility for some political um, sparks to happen that I tried to make uh, take place. And so I think that's, to me, that's, that's, that's part of the, the difficulty of the legacies of racism and colonization, that they don't make people who are victims 
better. <laughs> they often make them worse, but they op- also open up the potential of recognition of mutual solidarity. And so there's evidence of that happening in the novel as well. Um, and then, you know, my own personal experience in France is that I like France very much, have a lot of fun there. I've spent maybe in total like 12 or 15 months of my life in France. And I have to say, though, that in those 12 or 15 months, I experienced more racism directed against me personally than I ever have in the United States. Like in the United States, I'd say that I've experienced structural racism. I've experienced Hollywood racism in terms of just the level of anti-Asian stereotyping and all that kind of stuff. But being called racist names to my face doesn't happen very often. But it happened three times in France, coming from three different kinds of people, an older white woman, an older black woman, and a a group of you know non-white teenagers in different parts of Paris in the south of France, and I think that's 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 a political reality that that needs to be confronted. You know that uh, that race that it, whether you call it racism or prejudice, it also moves laterally uh, as well as as vertically, and uh, it's a, it's critical not simply to point the finger and to say well you know people of color can be racist too. It's also critical to point out that these are legacies of racism and colonization, the divide and conquer kind of realities that people have absorbed and taken into themselves and that, you know, any kind of politically conscious struggle needs to point point towards and work against. Yeah. Well, l- let's let's take that and return to Yun Sung Kim's assertion that if you focus on anti-blackness, you end up fighting the people closest to you. And I wanted to take that into some of the things that you've written outside of the book which I feel like still inform the book also because your, your protagonist, if we're thinking of the thesis antithesis and synthesis, your protagonist is a, is a, not just a sympathizer, but a synthesizer. And, um, I think you are too. Um, and a lot of your, your writing for magazines and newspapers, it feels like it exemplifies an insistence on nuance an insistence on not centering personal narratives over structural ones when it comes to analysis, even when the trauma is significant and substantial, not ignoring the personal, but tethering it to structural questions. And I'm thinking about a couple a couple pieces in particular. Um, your writings on Koreatown during the Rodney King riots, where Koreans suffered a large proportion of the property damage. Two Koreans were killed where the police pretty much let Koreatown burn while protecting other areas. And yet there were simmering tensions between the African-American and Korean-American communities before the riot. You don't write about this, but there were complaints of anti-black racism that the Korean shop owners didn't hire black people. And just before the Rodney King riots, there were two Korean-American shop owners who killed black customers, one in a scuffle, two um, when they accused uh, a customer of trying to steal a bottle of orange juice, and neither of the shop owners received any jail time, even though they killed two unarmed people. Um, Even though you weren't writing about that, specifically that part, you did point out that even though they lost most of the property, they also had property to lose, that the vast majority of people who died were black, that of the 12,000 people are arrested, most were black. And you did a similar complicated analysis with the Hmong police officers' complicity during the murder of George Floyd, the 
police officer who stood for the eight minutes during the time George Floyd was being murdered on camera and did nothing. But that, that essay also brought in all the inadequacies around the Asian American label, as, as you pointed out, without excusing the cops action, the Hmong community said, we're not going to beat ourselves up over our complicity with white supremacy as a community or for being white adjacent because we've never benefited from the model minority or seen its benefits. And you show how the poverty rate in that community is actually higher than for African-Americans and their per capita income is lower and uh, about a third of what, a third to a quarter of what someone from an Indian American or Taiwanese or Filipino American would earn. Um, and I'll provide links to these articles because they're, they're, they're very comfortable with contradiction and nuance and um, with going into some difficult places. But I wanted to look at your, sim your similar engagement within your own Vietnamese American community because your, your personal story has a lot of trauma in it, a deep series of traumas and a story that isn't uncommon among your fellow Vietnamese American refugees. Your parents refugeed twice, first to South Vietnam in the 50s, then to the States. Some of your first memories when you're only four years old of being in a relocation camp and being taken from your parents for several months as you each received different sponsors. Your brother being away from your family for several years. Your family being held at gunpoint in your house and shot in their store. And you've talked about the trauma and mental illness in the Vietnamese American community where you grew up because of all of these traumas and, and many that I'm not mentioning. And yet you seem very willing to call to account how this trauma is used or instrumentalized. And I, I'm thinking about recently your writings about Vietnamese American support for Trump, um, the most of any Asian American demographic and the numerous South Vietnamese flags flying at the Capitol insurrection, and about what you call the radicalized nostalgia that the white Trump supporters and the Vietnamese American Trump supporters share. So I was, I was hoping maybe you could talk to us about your work in this area, this in, in this area of what f feels like an intra-family conversation or battle, and also maybe you could speak to Vietnamese American anti-communism in this light. Cause it feels like, I mean, I don't want to make analogies across communities or not strong ones, but maybe there's an analogy or a weak one to the Cuban American community in this regard in relationship to the rest of the, the Latin American American population. I think it's actually a pretty strong analogy to the Cuban American experience, you know, that uh, we share this sense of exile displacement, loss, nostalgia for what might have been and what could have been. Um, and it's rooted in anti-communism, and then that intersects with the anti-communism of the United States, so that our collective personal angst over being refugees from communism fits perfectly into the narrative of anti-communist American exceptionalism, right? Which makes both Cubans and Vietnamese sort of ideal American uh, refugee subjects. And uh, you know, so at least on the Vietnamese side, I think a lot of Vietnamese Americans uh, uh, find themselves willing to play in to that for, for their own benefit. And often, obviously, oftentimes because they sincerely believe in these types of politics. 
Um, and so part of what it means to be a Vietnamese refugee or a Vietnamese American uh, of my generation in the United States is, is that it's an affective, deeply emotional experience. You know? It's like we, we, we are refugees, we experienced all these things, and yet people of my age, I think, don't, don't, didn't experience it as deeply as our parents and grandparents did, who lost everything as adults versus you know what happened to me when I was four years old coming as a refugee. So we're, we're, I think we're deeply familiar with these emotions of loss and resentment and, and anger and all that. And it's mixed in for people of my generation with love, with a sense of filial piety, knowing that even if we don't agree with our parents about various kinds of cultural and political issues, we owe them so much. And so to disagree with your parents or with this older generation for my generation is extremely difficult uh, because we feel like we're betraying them uh, in another language. You know, we're betraying them politically and culturally for all they've done for us. We're betraying them emotionally. And then we're betraying them in English because we recognize that part of our privilege as these American people is due to what our parents went through. Right. And so the Trump era really brought all of this to a head because obviously before the Trump era, um, you know, the, the degree of conservatism and Republican support in the Vietnamese American community was was fairly high anyway. And so there was already a sort of a, a cultural gap between those who were conservatives and those who weren't. And it doesn't split down easily into generations, but there's a tendency for the older generation to go one way and there's a tendency for the younger generation to go another. But Trump really exacerbated all that as he did for the entire country. And I found myself just caught up in that, you know, because it 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 really did feel to me like like the, the, the future of the country was at stake uh, during the Trump administration. And it disturbed me deeply that anybody was supporting the Trump administration, but even more so that any Vietnamese people were supporting the Trump administration and not just supporting it in a reluctant way like we're Republicans, but wholeheartedly going in for everything that the Trump administration represented. And so all that personal depth of feeling then became intersected with the need for political struggle. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've, I've always taken a public stance well before the Trump administration on, on all these various kinds of issues. And I've been called a communist before, but it got a lot worse as it, during this Trump administration for me as it did for everybody else. But I felt it was necessary to do that. And, and I think it got worse partly through the, 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 the depth of division of the Trump that the Trump administration caused, but also for Vietnamese people in particular because of the emotional nexus of, of obligation <laughs> and, and loyalty that the younger generation who was leaning against Trump felt. But, but and it was, it's, very, it, it's very emotionally taxing to do that. And so many younger Vietnamese Americans were going public saying, I can't believe that my, my family members are Trump supporters and we can't even have a conversation. And it's actually, it seemed to me worse than anti-communism and the debates around it. It, it, it actually felt worse. Mm. And, you know, I, I had a Facebook page of 93,000 followers. And for some reason, overwhelming majority were Vietnamese Americans and Vietnamese people. And during the last several months of 2020, it became all about racism and anti-blackness and the Trump administration and Vietnamese support for Trump. And the page sort of became a rallying point for a lot of progressive Vietnamese Americans and Vietnamese people who were opposed to Trump. But it also became the staging of a battleground for those who were supporters of Trump who would come in and attack me yeah. and you know, engage in these kinds of troll battles and things like that. Uh, but I felt I was willing to do it. 
it was necessary. Whenever there's a family struggle like this, both in, within one's family but also in the larger collective family, I think we feel like we have to do it because the soul of the family and the soul of the country is at stake. But after Trump got was defeated on December 26th, I deleted my Facebook page. I feel so much better. <laughs> yeah. You know, I may come back to it if things get worse, but for now, there's sort of a trough of, of, of expectation to see if the country can sort of pull itself together under a Biden administration. And even in the Vietnamese American community, things have toned down as a, as a result of that. So I'm, I'm just taking a rest right now, but I assume <laughs> I might be back given the politics of the country. Well, well, you just you met you posted today on on speaking of Facebook, you posted today about two of them the areas that seem most fraught when you speak out or when people speak out are when you speak out about Vietnamese anti-communism and pro-Trump, and also when you speak out in support of boycott and divestment of Israel around Palestine. And I was thinking about how when when I when I read about your engagements with the Vietnamese American community and um, the blowback you get for holding them to account for how um, their legitimate and real traumas are are now sort of being funneled into this um, imperial American anti-communist uh, narrative. Um, I think about how narrow that conversation is in the Jewish American community of what you can stay and still be considered family, especially in institutional spaces. But like for me, the only magazine I subscribe to it's called Jewish Currents, and I feel like it models this question of ethical memory because um, the magazine includes, of course, a lot of Jewish writers, but it also includes a lot of Arab and Muslim and Palestinian writers and a lot of black writers and a lot of black Jews and Jews of color. Um, and if you haven't checked it out, I mean, you see like Cornell West and you'll see Bernie Sanders, and but I, I could totally imagine you writing in, in Jewish Currents. But I wondered about the Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network and Diacritics, if that served a similar role of, of what I'm describing. Is this, a, is this an attempt to create a space uh, of ethical memory within the Vietnamese-American discourse? Yeah, I think so. And for those people who don't know what that, what that is, you know, like when I was a, a college student at Berkeley, uh, I was already, you know, a Vietnamese American, and and I and and I recognized that we needed to have more Vietnamese American voices out there to combat the things that we were seeing, you know, in Hollywood, for example, depicting Vietnam as a war and not a country. And so, it, my work as an aspiring writer was always bound up with my sense that this writing was tied to a community that uh, I wanted to speak for myself, but I thought that, you know, the stories would have relevance for a Vietnamese-American community, too. And so my friends and I uh, started a Vietnamese-American arts organization back then called Ink and Blood, very melodramatically, and that morphed eventually 20 years later into Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network, much more professional and all that kind of thing. And as part of that uh, effort, I started a blog called diecritics.org, which is now under the editorship of Eric Nguyen, who has a novel coming out from Knopf in just a few months, Things We Lost to the Water, great book. Um, but all of that is built on this idea that, you know, part of the, 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 necessa the necessary political struggle for a minoritized people is 
is through art and through culture and cultural politics. And we have to tell our own stories. We have to form our own artistic communities. We have to open the doors for everybody. We have to ensure that there's a proliferation of voices and that there's not just one voice for the voiceless or, or some kind of gatekeeping presence or something like that. So I take that very, you know, very seriously. And the work goes in two directions, as you're implying. You know, on the one hand, we have to be facing towards all of the United States and all the rest of the world to get all these stories out there. And on the other hand, we're, we're looking within our own family, within our own community, which uh, you know, is within the Vietnamese language media is dominated by these sort of anti-communist, conservative perspectives. And so we felt that there was a necessity to present a more progressive viewpoint that was U.S. focused and was focused on these questions of race and belonging and cultural diversity here in the U.S. And I think ironically, we have succeeded in doing that, not just Divan, but collectively as a whole, because Vietnamese American literature in this country is actually fairly successful. We have dozens yeah. and dozens of authors with books from major publishers and independent publishers and lots of awards, all that kind of stuff. So ironically, the point, the, what, 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 where we've reached is this recognition that we can't only do it in English anymore. We got to do it in Vietnamese too, you know, because the, the, the people in the Vietnamese American community who most need to hear these ideas need to hear them, can only hear them in Vietnamese. You know, so, you know, my recent work has been to do, like, like, you know, interviews in Vietnamese TV stations, you know, to, to, I don't need people to agree with me. I just need them to hear what I'm saying and then they can argue about that from there. And I just, you know, and there are all these efforts now in the Vietnamese American community from the younger generation or the more progressive group to, to try to figure out ways to communicate in Vietnamese, to, to, to foment these conversations. Uh, and again, not with an idea, I think, that we're going to try to persuade people or lecture to people, but simply to model the possibility of dialogue and conversation and disagreement uh, in civil and respectful ways yeah. without resorting to... The, the nuclear bomb for us it's anti-communism for Jewish people it's anti-Semitism you know but you just can't bring that out the moment someone disagrees with you and gives a political perspective you don't agree with even on a very very sensitive and divisive issue such as who should be in power in Vietnam or should you have BDS and you know so that's that's very difficult work you know because it's difficult work either way it's difficult to face like a white majority audience and try to get your story told and understood and it's difficult to go home where the passions run so much deeper. Well, I watched you on a, a Vietnamese American uh, TV show that you were being translated in real time on the show into Vietnamese. And it was, it was very interesting. It, um, it was respectful. I don't know if it was warm, but it was, um, but you were talking about why you thought something like food stamps wasn't communist or even socialist, um, and trying to parse out these things that um, the Vietnamese community was had benefited from in their in in their past histories at some point that are things that are not um, a Trojan horse towards a communist government. Yeah, and I, I'm not the last person who should be talking about these kinds of things. I'm not an expert on food stamps or the, or the welfare state or anything <laughs> right. like that, you know. But it's this weird position where you know because of the not the novel and the awards and whatever, like Vietnamese people uh, grant me some kind of legitimacy, you know. 
uh, and so okay, fine. I I I feel I I feel like it's an obligation to just take that little opportunity then to come in and say some stuff that I don't I don't know that much about. But it's that that viewpoint is not even being heard in the Vietnamese uh, American community in in Vietnamese. So it's it's something I feel very ambivalent about, you know, and and that I think my primary calling is as a writer and as a scholar. But there was there's work that needs to be done in public advocacy. And public arguments, and if I can have a role in that, uh, I would do my I would do my best. But I feel very stupid, honestly, most of the time, having to go on talking about these big political issues on which I'm not an expert. Well, I thought you were great. I thought you were really you you were really good on that show. But I also am kind of amazed how you'll say on Facebook, "Okay, I need to write about whatever the uh, the Vietnamese uh, Americans who are part of the Capitol insurrection," and then two days later, we get your your think piece in the in the Washington Post or Time Magazine. Um, so count me as a as as impressed and um, not on the side of you being stupid. But um, one, I want to switch to another country that plays a role in the committed. That I have some theories about why, but I want to hear your theories too. Is um, so one co- country that comes up a lot, other than Vietnam and France, is Cambodia, and I wondered about this. And one way I thought about it was as a way to complicate the notion of the Vietnam War being called the Vietnam War or even called the American War by the Vietnamese, that it's not just a war about Vietnam and America and that calling it either way erases Laos and Cambodia as victims or South Korea as participants or the French as the original colonizers. And even as you say it in your words, um, how quickly Vietnam went from a beacon of imperial resistance to one of imperial incursion with its occupation of Cambodia for a decade post-war. So to use the totally wrong vocabulary, Cambodia was Vietnam's Vietnam. But I also wonder if you using Cambodia is a part of a critique of the communist side of the dialectic. Perhaps in the spirit of, of Teju Cole when he was on, and he said, year zero projects never succeed. So people trying to erase everything and beginning from nothing, whether the French Revolution or Mao or the Khmer Rouge, aren't successful. And then I'm thinking of Sartre's early support for Mao, Stalin, and Pol Pot, which obviously, looking back, haven't aged well. Um, but talk to us about Cambodia it shows up regularly in the book. It's not the main focus, but it feels like it's insistent. It's insisting itself in, in the, in this um, project. Yeah. I, I think it's both in it. Uh, uh, the, the, it's born from the necessity to both criticize the failure of communism as it's necessary to fit, to criticize the failure of any political ideology. So in the United in, in the sympathizers, there was much greater focus on American capitalism and American democracy and its particular contradictions and failures, and also on Vietnamese communism and uh, politics, revolutionary politics, and and uh, in the in, in the committed, I, I wanted to continue these kinds of critiques, uh, but I felt like you know that I had already made a very strong case about the, the particular failures of communist revolutionary politics. And in the committed, uh, one of the other things I wanted to criticize was was you know nationalism, that all nationalisms are subject to their own very deeply necessary blind spots. You know, we have to we have to forget 
everything that our nation has done to become a nation in, in order to proclaim our patriotism. And so, you know, all nations are, 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 are usually founded on acts of violence and conquest and all of that. So in the American context, we're very familiar, I think, with what those acts of violence and conquest are. And then if we're saying these kinds of things, it's easy to forget, if we come from other countries, what those countries have done. And so that's, that's the case with Vietnamese people. Um, we're, we're very good at saying, hey, look, we were colonized by the Chinese for a thousand years, and the French and the Americans. So we're, like everybody else, we're eager to claim our own victimization. You, fi- you meet very few Vietnamese people who will proactively volunteer that Vietnam is an imperialist country. You know, like we, you know, we, fled, we, we, we fought the Chinese in order partially to be able to then march south and take over other lands and conquer other peoples to make modern Vietnam. So South Vietnam, for example, Southern Vietnam, a lot of it is formerly Thailand and Cambodia. Mm. And so that's why Cambodia is in there, uh, primarily. I mean, yes, I, I bring up the failures of, of, of Pol Pot and Khmer Rouge, but mostly I wanted to, to have it in there in order to, 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 to make it impossible for Vietnamese people to sort of deny what they have done. Uh, and that's exactly what Vietnamese people want to do. That's what all people want to do is to d- deny what they have done. And so the presence of Cambodia is, is there at least partly to, to, to point out that uh, Vietnamese people need to, need to, to, to be self-reflexive in their discussions of victimization and in, in nationalism as well as in communism and its failures. Yeah. The book opens with an epigraph taken from a book called The Elimination, A Survivor of the Khmer Rouge Confronts His Past in the Commandant of the Killing Fields. And that epigraph goes, nothing's more real than nothing. And I looked for where this came from, and the full quote goes, there was no overall plan, no organization, no dispositions had been made to guide, feed, care for, or lodge these thousands and thousands of people we sensed that the evacuation was turning bad. The family bartered what they could, but soon had nothing left. Contrary to the popular notion, it's not true that there's always something left to swap. I've seen a country stripped completely bare, where a fork was a possession too precious to give away, where a hammock was a treasure. Nothing's more real than nothing. And there are many riffs uh, on this notion of nothing in the book. And some are quite long and Baroque and even sometimes extremely funny. Sometimes I'm caught in some of these riffs that you go on around nothing and I'm just laughing and, and amazed. And at one point, the protagonist expresses the dream of the nobodies everywhere rising up, regardless of ethnicity or nation, against the somebodies of one's own kind. But more often, your your riffs on nothing feel more like koans, um, and that can't quite be reduced to something entirely graspable. For instance, there's the line early in the book, for most of my life, I had constantly and desperately believed in something, only to discover that the heart of that something was nothing. So why not give nothing a chance? Or late in the book, I believe something. I believe nothing is sacred. Life is full of meaning. So I wanting you to talk to us about nothing. Uh, talk to us about nothing being more real than nothing. And what that means 
because it doesn't mean nihilism. The narrator very clearly says he's not asserting nihilism, but he is asserting nothing is sacred, which can be read like so many different ways that depending where you put the emphasis on that sentence. Well, uh, let me start going back to the original quote, nothing is uh, nothing is more real than nothing by Riti Pond. You know, Riti Pond is a filmmaker, Cambodia's number one filmmaker. Made, his, his whole body of work has been devoted to the Cambodian genocide and its aftermath. I think his movie, The Missing Picture, is brilliant and the, the best thing I've ever seen about the Cambodian genocide in memory. And then the quote is from his memoir, The Elimination, where he tracked down and interrogated the most infamous uh, uh uh, Khmer Rouge criminal who'd been pro- uh, convicted at that time, a guy who was in charge of a prison camp where 17,000 people died. And I think Ritipan's work, I really admire it because it, it is, it is, it's completely emblematic of my notions of ethical memory. But it's also grappling with the failure of a revolutionary project, this very idealistic revolutionary project, which he connects directly back to the French. You know, in, in the elimination, he says, look, we got this from the French, these democratic revolutionary aspirations. And so you can't untangle what happened in Cambodia from what the French did. And yet at the same time, he insists the Cambodians did this to themselves. So he's both you know, holding colonialism to account and holding Cambodians to account, which is exactly the kind of project I want to be engaged in. And he's holding into account this, 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 these revolutionary ideals. And for me, this is very important because, you know, my own formation as an Asian American was through this notion of revolutionary ideals. And I believe in these revolutionary projects. So what happens if you take your revolutionary ideals to the very extreme, like the, like the Khmer Rouge did? And that's something that's always haunted me. The Vietnamese didn't go as far as the Cambodians, but they went pretty far. And a lot of terrible things happened. So I wanted to grapple. My entire life so far has been intellectually and politically a project of grappling with the implications of of this revolutionary aspiration and its possible consequences. And the the focus on nothing and the the paradoxes and ambiguities involved with that term is a direct consequence of engaging with this revolutionary project. Because what if at the heart of revolution you have nothing? All these ideals, what if they just collapse? And I think that's true not just for communism, but for every kind of revolutionary project that contains within itself the possibility of its own corruption and destruction. Uh, human beings what they are being what they are. And there's another version of this kind of like revolutionary thinking that is not about uh, capturing the state or overthrowing classes, but is instead a revolution that's more about uh, what happens inside of us, our spirituality, our conceptions of who we are, our relationship to being. And this, I have to say, up front, is something that I don't really totally understand. And if anything, the the trilogy of which the sympathizer and the committed are a part is an attempt to work dialectically through both of these senses of revolution, both the external revolutions of of communism and the struggle for the state and the failures therein and the aspirations of things like 1968 in France against or parallel to this other struggle for sort of a more personal liberation from the world. That's where the nothing, that's where the other dimension of nothing is. And, yeah, you know, I, I started to broach it at the end of The Sympathizer, talking about how nothing is more precious than independence and freedom. And some of the responses that people had were, are you like grappling, are you trying to like give us a nihilistic idea here? And that wasn't the ambition, as you said. So in The Committed, I wanted to make it very clear. It's not nihilism, it's something else. 
And there are other roots for this idea of nothing in, in non-Western cultures, like in Buddhism. And I'm still trying to feel my way towards what that means. But in the committed, I think I, I, I get further into that with this idea that nothing is sacred. Both this idea that, that nothing is out of bounds in terms of what we can aspire to or what we should talk about, but also that nothingness itself, absence, blankness, is important as well. And that in Western cultures, we're, we're not really uh, equipped to deal with absence and, and negative spaces and blank spaces. And part of what the committed is, is working towards is trying to, trying to confront this absence. And Ritipan's work, I think part of what he's, what he's talking about is both the nothingness at the heart of, revolutionness, of, of revolution, but also at, at, at the aftermath Nothing is left. Your family is destroyed. Millions of people are dead. There's only the ghosts that haunt you. That's nothing, and that's that's. But that's also something at the same time. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've been talking this whole time, and you alluded to this at the beginning. I want to move from this, at least for a moment, to acknowledge more deeply that even though we've had this very serious and philosophical discussion. And even here, we're having a very serious and philosophical discussion about nothing and something and revolution. And the book is tonally extremely funny, and it's even funny when engaging with what you just talked about. So it's sort of in the tradition of a satire as as much as it is in the tradition of a book of ideas. And you do have a nod in this book, like you have a nod to Philip Roth in the first book with the squid masturbation scene. But in this book, you also have a line laid in the book, now we are perhaps ready to begin, which echoes the last line of, of Portnoy's complaint, the horrifyingly hilarious last line of that book. But I wondered what your satirical or perhaps satirical slash political touchstones were uh, for the committed. Well, thank you for catching that allusion to Philip Roth in this novel as well. Very deliberate quote. But the other major touchstone probably was was Voltaire. Uh, you know, that, so I read a lot of I, I read or reread a lot of French thinkers and writers uh, for the purposes of this book, and one of them was Voltaire, uh, Candide, which I had read when I was a kid. You know, and for whatever reason, Candide, a little paperback, was in the children's section of the San Jose Public Library, and with a you know little cartoonish illustration on the cover, I thought it's 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 an adventure book. It's a kid's book, and I, I loved it. It was just a lot of fun. So obviously I only got half the book. I only understood half the book when I read it at the time. And so I, I, had not re, I did not reread it until uh, this, this novel. But in the back of my mind, I, I, I remembered enough from Candide and knew enough about it to think that, that what happened to Candide is, 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 is something that I want to aspire to in The Sympathizer and The Committed. I mean, this, the narrator of these two novels goes through more than what any human being should possibly be able to absorb. And maybe no human being could absorb all these things except in a novel or in a fable, like in uh, Candide. And so the, the, the committed is explicitly modeled on, on some of these extreme experiences that Candide also under, undergoes. And in going back to Candide, you know, I, I, I reread it in English, right? And then, as with all my all the translated texts from the French to the English, I went back and looked at everything I quoted, and I went back to the French source. And so there's a passage I quote from Candide where, where, where he talks about, uh, where one of the characters says, is it, is it worse to suffer everything we've been through or to do nothing? 
And Candide says, well, that's a big question. And that is the question of the book, right? But in that quote that I had, it said so specifically, is it, is it, it mentions being um, ravished by pirates. And then I went back to the French, and it's very specifically says ravished by Negro pirates. Oh, wow. So for whatever reason, the English translation I had omitted that word. Yeah. And so that just became to me a sign of the other yeah. issues, some of the other issues that the book deals with, which, which is the presence of black people in this racist imagination and the French imagination. And obviously Candide was progressive for his time, but also was also you know re- reiterating some of these kinds of images and ideas at the same time. But anyway, I mean... His Candide is is a uh, is a very serious novel, very philosophical novel, and at the same time a lot of fun, and a satire and a critique, and so that's the the spirit in which the committed is is written. I was hoping we could hear a little bit of a, a, I picked out a little excerpt that I think is a great example of one of many examples of of um, humor and and philosophy and analysis all in one. Walking the next morning to the Maoist PhD's apartment from the metro, I experienced deja vu for the second time in less than 12 hours. Strange that even my psychic ties or malfunctions were named in the master's language. The first time was when I offered to split the profits with my aunt, 50-50, only to have her counter with 60-40, terms to which I had to agree once again. The second time was walking on the Maoist PhD's street, where I had the eerie sense that I had been there before, since this street evoked for me one of Saigon's boulevards, or rather, Saigon's boulevards evoked a street like his. The French had designed Saigon in the spirit of Haussmann's Paris, with wide thoroughfares and broad sidewalks lined with fetching trees and elegant apartment buildings of no more than six or seven stories, decorated with balconies and capped by garrets where, during the heat of August, one could roast artists or the poor, which we in Saigon could do year-round. Oh, Saigon, Pearl of the Orient, or so it was called, presumably by the French, using a term of endearment that we ourselves had adapted, for there was nothing that people of a small country liked better than to be flattered, so rarely did it happen. But sometimes we were not just the Pearl of the Orient, and sometimes the Pearl of the Orient did not even refer to us. I had heard the Chinese of Hong Kong claim that their port was the Pearl of the Orient, and when I was in the Philippines, the Filipinos insisted that Manila was the Pearl of the Orient. Colonies were a pearl choker adorning the alabaster white neck of the colonizer. And sometimes a Pearl of the Orient could be a Paris of the Orient as well. The Parisians and the French and just about everyone meant that as a compliment, but it was a backhanded compliment, the only kind a colonizer could give to the colonized. After all, as the Paris of the Orient, Saigon was just a cheap imitation of haute couture. I had worked myself into such a lather of resentment that I was practically frothing at the mouth when Paris suddenly gave me a sticky reminder of one way that Saigon was considerably superior. Squish! I stopped and looked with dread and then disgust at the sole of my shoe. Nowhere in Saigon would the unwitting pedestrian have a chance of stepping on canine excrement because the statistical truth was that we preferred to consume canines rather than keep them as pets. And if we kept them, we never allowed them to wander the streets for fear that they might be eaten. Vive la différence! 
Here in Paris, dogs roamed everywhere, liberated to do their business as they pleased. In this case, some degenerate Parisian dog owner, of whom thousands existed, had left the prize on almost on the doorstep of the Maoist psychoanalyst's building. The imprint of my soul was on the thick brown smear, ready for a detective to study my shoe print. No amount of scraping against the cement would get rid of the foul substance from the crevices of my shoe. I gave up, hesitated before buzzing the Maoist PhD's apartment, but then remembered the first lesson of capitalism, which was so hard for Vietnamese people to learn. Never be late. I pressed the button. In the tiny elevator, which offered room for no more than three adults of average French build, or four Vietnamese of average Vietnamese build, or perhaps three and a half Eurasians like me, the odor from my shoe was evident. I kept my soul off the floor, and when the Maoist PhD let me into his apartment, I did my best to walk in that manner, limping, I said, because of a sore ankle. It was not my fault that the French were not as civilized as Asians, who believed, for very good reason, that one should take off one's shoes before entering a house. In this regard, the French were medieval. We've been listening to Viet Thanh Nguyen read from The Committed. So, so toward the end of the book, things get stranger formally. We can see some increasing changes in font. We get the dialogue in a theatrical play. There's a block of slowly shrinking text alternating between exclamatory thank yous and exclamatory fuck yous. And, and we get out of nowhere the first and only photo in the book. And I was curious what compelled you enough to include this one and only photo at the end or near the end. I'm, I'm trying to remember when I saw that photo for the first time, but it's a photo of, uh, of a protest march in uh, Paris in 1982. And it was a very famous march of, uh, against racism um, on the behalf of uh, North Africans and, um, and black people in France. And uh, I, I discovered that the Vietnamese in France at the time also participated in the march. And that's what the photo is about, a group of younger uh, French and Vietnamese descent holding a sign saying, you know, the Vietnamese in France, identity and integration. And at the front of the, of the march were three young men wearing white masks on their faces. And in the committed, the one of the characters um, uh, who, who, if you read The Sympathizer, you know he's the faceless man, comes to Paris and he doesn't want to be faceless, so he wears a white mask on his face. And I put that in the novel well before I had seen the photograph. So when I saw the photograph, I was just a, it was just a jarring moment as I thought, wait a minute, this, this actually happened in a different context, but at the same time. So I just, I, all I did was to sort of tweak the narrative of the novel a little bit to incorporate the, the, that march into the book, both to commemorate the history of that march and to acknowledge the fact that Vietnamese, there were French and Vietnamese descent who participated in this march of racial solidarity, which I thought was really crucial, but also just to visualize the masks. And of course, I think uh, the, the book, the, both of the books are about, are partly about the masks that people wear to each other and to themselves. And the, the last line of the, of the committed brings up the idea of both laughing and crying at the same time which alludes to the, the, the masks of tragedy and comedy. 
So all of that was wrapped up mm-hmm. in, in that photograph for me. Plus, you know, I'm a deep, a huge admirer of, of W.G. Zebald. I love what he does with photographs in his books. Yes. I would love to do that some, someday. And so this was my one, one short gesture <laughs> at something like that. So, so to return to the beginning of our conversation and, and France's different relationship to communism and socialism, you mentioned the ideas of many French or French language thinkers from the Jewish, French, Algerian, Hélène Sixou to Aimé Césaire, but most notably you're engaging with Franz Fanon from Martinique who joins the Algerian Liberation Front and who wrote some of the most influential works on post-colonial theory and on anti-black racism. And you also teach a class now on the literature of decolonization. And I think one could as easily assemble a syllabus just from reading The Committed just by jotting down the works that are either mentioned or being read by characters in the book. At one point in the book, your character says, the most difficult thing when offered two false choices was imagining a third choice. And it it feels like if your essays are any indicator, I suspect that you're like your character in a way in that you're working on trying to imagine this third choice. Um, And I think of your essay about your mom after she died, where you talk about the Japanese film Afterlives by Hirokazu Koreeda, which I love also, and where you die and arrive in heaven and you have to choose one memory. Um, And then the angels will make a film of that one memory and you'll watch that film in a loop and that becomes your heaven. But if you can't choose one memory you yourself become an angel filmmaker and help other people choose their one memory. You say that you, in that essay that you've always thought of yourself as someone who wouldn't be able to decide on one memory. And like you, your character won't commit to one side of this um, polarization between the two other blood brothers. So in a way, he too is an angel filmmaker. You, you quote Adorno at one point who says... We should be wary of committed writers. But at the same time, your protagonist, as he differentiates himself from both armed Marxist revolution and the radicalized nostalgia of an anti-communist lost cause, does say that he is nevertheless committed to revolution. And in the book, there is the line, revolution is always an act of insanity because revolution is not revolution if not committed to the impossible. I think you've already spoken to this a little, but can can you speak to that impossible third way for you a little bit more about the revolution that you are committed to that is not those that you see to either side of you? Well, another person I quote is uh, uh, Derrida, or at least I alluded to Derrida in the book, Chuck Derrida, who has a book on uh, forgiveness. And, uh, you know, in, in in his book on forgiveness, Derrida says, you know, the the only the only thing that can really be forgiven is the unforgivable. It's a typical kind of Derridian thinking that just flummoxed me. You know, it still flummoxes me. But and I was like, I was outraged when I saw that. I was like, how you can't forgive the unforgivable? This is just more Derridian, you know, twists in in in, in thinking. But uh, I think, in fact, uh, that there is a great great truth to that that the novel tries to work through. And this is another reason why. 
Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge genocide is uh, is in the book, you know, because that is an unforgivable act. And uh, and in, but in fact, you know, Pol Pot had a lawyer who defended him, and that lawyer um, was Vietnamese and French uh, descent. So I wanted to confront some of these paradoxes of around being uh, around unforgivable the unforgivability of things and the impossibility of things how can we how can we commit to, to, to doing things like to forgive the unforgivable or to have a revolution when it's impossible and it, it's this kind of paradoxical thinking that i find very difficult to engage in in which as a you know a teenage revolutionary college student i explicitly rejected you know i wanted clear-cut answers i just wanted a clear path towards the revolution and, and i didn't want ambiguities and paradoxes and anything like that and yet at the same time, I think that that's exactly the, that that's, that's the terrain on which writing, especially writing of fiction, um, for me, is, is situated. And that's the terrain of like moral thinking, is to try to grapple with these, these paradoxes that come directly out of our human contradictions. And so revolution in the sympathizer and the committed becomes disattached from actual revolutions. Like the actual revolutions are like the American Revolution and the French Revolution and the Vietnamese Revolution, all of which accomplished different things, but also also destroyed certain things uh, as well. But the idea of revolution is still important. The idea that that there are things that need to be upended, there, there's a necessity for change and, and cycles and things like this. And so that, in the end, I think, is, is what the narrator of The Committed is grappling with, that he's not really a communist, but he is a revolutionary. He has this revolutionary spirit. He, he has the need to constantly interrogate himself and the world around him to see the contradictions and to, to try to work through the contradictions to move to another place. Uh, and that project never ends. Even if our specific revolution ends, that larger project of interrogating contradiction, moving through the dialectic, trying to get to another place, that continues. Uh, with the ultimate aspiration, this ultimate idealist, probably impossible aspiration to do things like liberate us all from all the various ways by which we are oppressed and by which we oppress others. I don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> you know, the book doesn't offer that answer, but the, the book holds out that, 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 ide- that, that longing and that, that, that ideal that motivates a certain kind of person and a certain kind of community. And it cites various thinkers and activists and artists who have likewise made these kinds of gestures as well. And so I think for me, the novel, I want the novel to be fun, to be enjoyable, to be satirical, but I also want this novel to not be apologetic in terms of, of, of embracing a kind of art and a kind of politics that aspires towards this impossibility of, of revolution, uh, simply because I see, I, I see so little of it <laughs> happening. Maybe, maybe for good reason. Maybe, maybe we shouldn't be doing these kinds of things, but part of me still hopes that we should, and, and the committed is my way of, of trying to, 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 to make that happen, at least for myself. Well, is the title of your as-of-yet-written third book, The Unfinished, is that a nod to this? the unfinished work that can't be finished? Exactly. You know, uh, the revolution is never finished, right? I mean, the, the, the fear, of course, is like with year zero in the Khmer Rouge, they wanted to finish the revolution. They thought they could really literally build their perfect utopian society in like 10 years or something like that. So I think to, to acknowledge that revolutions are unfinished or never finished or always, you know, they, they have to have an openness towards the next stage of the revolutionary movement. Otherwise, what happens is that they become 
they, they displace the powerful and they become the powerful and then they repeat the processes of oppression, which we've seen happen far too often. So having the, 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 the revolution be op- open-ended and unfinished, knowing that we ourselves as individuals are unfinished, that, that, that we, we, we have something somewhere else that we need to go to, I think, go to, I think is ethically and politically crucial. And then in the context of the trilogy itself, every part of the trilogy has been written with a sort of a self-consciousness towards the conditions of its own writing. So, for example, you know, when I wrote The Sympathizer, it's a first-person narrative, and that's a, that's a common convention, but I wanted to give a reason as to why we're reading this first-person narrative. Who's writing it? Who's, who's speaking? And is, that, is he speaking to somebody? And so it's a confession. That was the eventual device that made it possible to think we had this manuscript in our hands. And then The Committed, likewise, we have another confession that he's written in different circumstances, as we're going to discover. And so in the third book, there has to be a similar set of conditions by which we have the manuscript in our hands. And I don't want to give away (laughs) what's going to happen, but it's going to be unfinished by the very conditions of the story that we're going to see unfold. Yes. Well, before we end, can you can you talk to us? You're also working on a memoir, right? Yes. Can you can you share a little bit about that or is that or do you want to protect the bubble of of that creation from exposure to the light? I'll mention it very briefly, but uh, you know what happened as you as you said is that I've written a whole bunch of nonfiction pieces and op eds and all that, all that, and a lot of them have been at least partly autobiographical. So my wonderful editor Peter Blackstock said, "Why don't you just write a nonfiction book since you've written all this other stuff?" And I said, "Sure," but I didn't want to just slap together all these pieces and call it a book. So it is you know, I have I've, I'm three quarters of the way through a first draft, writing it as a memoir, which I never thought I would ever do, you know, because I, I don't like writing about myself. But in the last three or four years, writing these op-ed pieces and going on the road, giving a lot of lectures, I've had to come up with a story about myself to myself and to audiences, which has forced me to uh, think through a lot of my life that I've spent my life running away from. You know, I've, 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 I've used my fiction to deal with the emotional energies of my own life. And now with writing a nonfiction book, I could turn back directly to the actual events that have shaped me and that I have, whose emotional impact on me, I have sought to um, compartmentalize and to deny. So all of that is in the book, along with a lot of you know, political and cultural commentary about the United States, about colonialism, about all the things we've talked about today. Yeah. Are we going to see that before we see the unfinished, do you think? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but both are unfinished. Yes. Yes. Well, it was great having you back on Between the Covers. Thank you so much, David. It was a great conversation, as always. We're talking today to Viet Tan Nguyen about his new book, The Committed from Grove. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Viet Thanh Nguyen's work at vietnguyen.info. The Diasporic Vietnamese Artist Network can be found at dvan.org. When you get there, click on the Diacritics link to explore the highlighted literature and art 
from the Vietnamese and Southeast Asian diaspora. For the bonus audio archive, Viet Thanh Nguyen talks about the importance of Edward P. Jones and Maxine Hong Kingston to his writing life, and reads selected excerpts from each to exemplify things he particularly admires or learned from. This joins bonus readings from Teju Cole, Ross Gay, Nikki Finney, Laylee Long Soldier, Mary Kim Arnold, EJ Ko, and many others. To learn how to subscribe to the bonus audio and about the many other potential benefits of becoming a listener supporter, from collectible items from your favorite writers to becoming a Tin House early reader receiving books months before the general public, to getting resource-rich emails accompanying each episode. All of this and more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who make all of this come together. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, and Spencer Rukti in the book division. Jacob Bala in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog e Sapatita Mi, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.